All right, our New Testament lesson is, is that a little better? I think that's a little better. Okay, our New Testament lesson is taken from the first chapter of Colossians. Begin with verse 15. Very rich passage. Um, I may end up even doing a, a special Bible study just on the first part of this sometime this summer because there's so much here. Uh, really, um, it's one of the most powerful statements of who Christ is in the New Testament. Uh, most likely, the verses 15 through 20 pre-existed as some sort of hymn or creed in the early church. Okay, So we know that uh, in Greek we can kind of tell from the way it's styled. So it's pretty profound that the early church was already saying this about Jesus Christ within 30 years of his uh, crucifixion resurrection. So it's a very powerful statement of who Christ is. So let's listen to the word of God that comes to us from chapter 1, Colossians, beginning with verse 15. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is above all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And you, who once were estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I became his servants according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he has powerfully inspired within me. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, that through your word proclaimed, we may be truly uh, set free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, yesterday was the 50th anniversary of first walking on the moon by Neil Armstrong, followed by Buzz Aldrin. And I hope you've been taking advantage of kind of uh, relearning this or learning it for the first time. It was an amazing time in our nation. I was just a kid, but my mom was a space program junkie, all right? 
We watched everything we could possibly watch about it. I had an uncle who was actually in the space program who was uh, operating one of the tracking stations around uh, the country. I really encourage you, CNN has a really great special uh, that uses all archival footage from NASA. So, I mean, they, they recorded everything because they know it was historical. Really amazing, amazing stuff. Um, I also saw where Buzz Aldrin yesterday, or sometime this week, punched a guy in the nose, came up to him and said that, uh, you know, one of these uh, moon deniers, you know, those people who said the whole thing was a conspiracy. So 80-year-old Buzz Aldrin just smacked him, which I'm, which I'm not advocating, but I kind of like that he did it. Yeah, the guy had it coming to him. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, this week uh, they were they were uh, playing on NPR on Fresh Air, uh, kind of they put a program of compilation of different people they had spoken to over the years in the space program, and Michael Collins was on, who who was a pilot of the spaceship. If you remember, he's the one who had to circle the moon while the lunar module went down there. Matter of fact, on the CNN narrative, they have this guy I don't know who he was speaking, but he says. Never since Adam has one man been so isolated than Michael Collins on the dark side of the moon. Because every time he went around the dark side of the moon, for 40-some minutes, no one could talk to him. So that, that would have been a pretty remarkable, isolating feeling. But he was being interviewed, and he said that um, his biggest fear, okay, and there's a lot of things to be afraid of. You know, we, we don't realize, I mean, at the time, they didn't tell us everything. Uh, but it was they, these guys were a special bunch. They had the right stuff, as Tom Wolf in that book uh, wrote about. But Michael Collins said his biggest fear was that somehow uh, the lunar module could not redock uh, with command, and that he would have to leave them in space, which would have been a horrible thing. So he said, "I was so thankful." He said, "I could have kissed Neil Armstrong when I saw him, but that didn't seem proper, so I didn't do it." <laughs> Um, but one of the things he said is how impressive it was watching the Earth rise over the moon. And he said, initially, you realized how, how big it was compared to the moon, but then you look around and realize how small it was. In that same program, Alan Shepard, who was the first American in space, uh, one of the original seven Mercury pilots, he was also the only original of the seven who was on the moon. He was the, pilot, he was the commander of Apollo 14, I think that's right. And one of the things he was talking about and said that when you look at the Earth from the moon, you're struck about how small and vulnerable and beautiful it is and how limited the resources of the Earth are. And he went on to say, if people could have the same perspective I had, they might stop fighting and killing each other and they might work together to survive realizing how small and vulnerable and precious what we have here is. Well, you'd like to say that 50 years after the moon program, we had learned that lesson, but we really haven't, have we? Maybe even, we may even knew more stuff then, and we're more concerned then than we are now. That could be really the possibility. But to compare the vulnerability and the needs of humanity in contrast, the immensity of space should give us a perspective. Today's text is really a contrast between the exalted Christ, if you would, the cosmic Christ, okay, not in any kind of 
you know, some people use that term as kind of a new asyncratic kind of term. But really what Paul is presenting here is a cosmic Christ, a Christ who is Lord over all that exists, which includes the powers and principalities. And for them, that would be the heavenly bodies. When they looked up at space, they didn't see stars and planets. They saw divine beings. So what Paul is saying here, the Christ is Lord of the whole cosmos. And he's the Lord of your day as well. If I had to ask you what are the spiritual needs of our time, what do people need? What are people seeking? What are people hungry for? I actually think this is not a particularly strong religious time we live in right now. Uh, The lecture I gave on Tuesday, the Reformation, contrary to sometimes how people think about it, was a hyper-religious time. Okay. Everybody wanted to reform. Okay. So the Reformation happened when people had a greater religious fervor. I'm not sure we have that great of a religious fervor now. It's kind of a season of for lack of a better word, kind of laxity. Um, people are quick to find what's wrong with religion and more concerned about brunch, maybe, than being in church on Sunday. Now, I care about brunch, too. Don't get me wrong. Brunch is good. All right? Like right now, right now, nothing sounds good. It's so hot. <laughs> but I can, I can recover and have blueberry pancakes later, all right? But if I ask you, what do people need right now? What are people looking... To, to receive from God. Maybe think about yourself. What is it that you need? What is it you seek in your spiritual life? Well, the second half of our passage today is an amazing uh, overview of, if not everything, almost everything people in the first century were looking for. I had, uh, I had the great privilege of having Dr. J. Christian Becker be a professor of mine in seminary, uh, one of the leading Paul scholars of his lifetime, of his time, and he once said that the Apostle Paul is not so much a theologian, but rather a missionary who was a brilliant thinker. And I would, I would add a brilliant observer of what was going on. Because following this Christological hymn that we talked about, this beautiful, magnificent hymn of who Christ is, the next part of this passage Paul, in one way or another, touches on almost every psycho-religious need of humans in the first century. I mean, we could spend a couple weeks just looking at everything he alludes to that was an issue or a need for people in the first century. Faith in Christ has given the Colossians reconciliation, hope, freedom from guilt and alienation, spiritual knowledge, gnosis is the Greek word there. Wisdom, Sophia is the Greek word there. Revelation of mystery, freedom from the flesh and its deeds. It is an amazing panorama. I didn't mention everything of what people were looking for in the the 50s and 60s, and not only Colossia, but the whole Greco-Roman world. When I think of how the gospel is presented today, when and if it is presented, I'm reminded what C.S. Lewis once said of the modern age. It's not that we want too much, but rather we settle for so little. The problem with humans in the 21st century, it's not that we want too much, but rather we settle 
for so little. Estrangement. This idea that we are in active warfare, if you would, with the things around us. This word is very unique. Paul uses it here. It means that you are estranged from God. You are estranged from each other. You're estranged from yourself. You're at war with God. You're at war with each other. You're in a constant state of turmoil. I, I think that kind of speaks about our time, right, as well. Okay. For instance, why are we always so quick to be angry, for instance, while we're driving? Now, I know none of you are like this, but... But what does it matter if someone's going too slow in the passing lane? That drives me crazy when they do that, all right? Or you're waiting for a parking spot in the parking lot, and someone pulls in before you. People have been shot for that in our country, all right? Now, that's just one sign of the um, anger and frustration people feel. Um, my, my sons, my younger two sons are, are lacrosse coaches, with youth right now. And uh, they have developed this wonderful ability to find the quickest way to walk away from parents after each game. And these are highly successful teams. <laughs> but there's always something somebody can be angry about. Right? Well, that's part of what the people that Paul's writing to dealt with. The seeking of knowledge and wisdom. Now, this idea of gnosis captures kind of all that special you know, you, you can see it online you can see it on social media would you like to have secret insight on how to become rich? Our secret the secret to looking young for the rest of your life, or the secret how to get people to like you okay for only so much money paid over three installments <laughs> you can find that out or that's kind of what Gnosis was in the first century, the secret insight into like some, even some kind of magic. Here's the secret mysteries of the world. Uh, Sophia, Paul touches wisdom. Uh, wisdom had been a very important way of, of thinking both in the Jewish community, but it's also in a lot of ways, it's a little bit what Buddhism is about as well. And you have to remember, Christianity was born in this perfect marriage between the East and West. There were a lot of ideas going back and forth. And seeking after wisdom is, all right, how should you live? Okay, this is kind of like your self-help book, Seven Principles to a More Better Emotional You, 12 Ways for You to Live Better, 16 Different Principles on How to Change Your Mind to Make Things Better for You. In our Bible, Proverbs, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, these are all books that came out of this wisdom movement. And Paul's saying, not only do we get the secret knowledge in Christ, but also wisdom, skill at living. Okay, how shall we live? That's in Christ as well. And then this amazing passage, again, I wish I could talk about all of it, but this idea of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Someone was recently asked me, okay, what is it that you Christians have? What is, it, what is the unique perspective that you Christians have? And I, I really think it's this. And this is what Paul says here, that the Christ who is Lord over all, the Christ who has conquered sin and death, the Christ who is the representative of God, and our baptism becomes part of us and we become part of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not some vague idea of the afterlife. 
Okay? When I'm, when I'm dealing with people on their deathbed, I don't talk about heaven. Matter of fact, I had someone one time, they were a member, a very active member of a different church, not this was a different community, and their friends asked me if, if I would come talk to her. Now, I knew she was a devout Christian. I knew that she was very involved in her church. But I said, sure, I'll go talk to her. And, and this was this mother, you know, she was too young to be dying, but she was dying. And she was afraid to tell her pastor the question she had because she thought he would be judgmental of her. And I said, well, what's your question? She goes, heaven doesn't sound very interesting to me. And I, <laughs> I said, well, well, what do you think of heaven? I don't know. Are we on clouds? Are we playing harps? Are we... What are we doing? I, you know, it, it doesn't give me comfort. Matter of fact, all I know is that I'm, I'm about to die and leave my family who I love. That doesn't give me any comfort. And I said, she goes, so what's heaven like? And I go, well, I haven't been there. And uh, she laughed. All right. But I think the purest definition of heaven is you're with Christ with no boundaries. I said, does, does God give you comfort? She goes, yes. She goes, I'm, the only way I have strength to face this is because of I believe Christ loved me and I feel his love even in these awful days. I said, heaven is being with that forever without any pain. Heaven is being with that forever and never having to say goodbye to anybody. And she said to me, she goes, I like that. Christ in you is the hope of glory. We don't have some sort of vague idea of the afterlife. Okay? We have Christ. And all of these attributes, all these things that we benefit from, forgiveness, reconciliation, the hope of glory, is directly related to the hymn that we have in the first part of this text. Who is Christ? I really encourage you to take time this week and just re read this 15 through 20 and reflect upon it. I mean, um, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Why are we here? <laughs> because God has created us to be here. The Bible doesn't tell us how, okay? There is no conflict between science and religion unless religious people and scientific people want to fight, which unfortunately they, they do, okay? All right, but the Bible doesn't tell us how we got here. Okay, so whatever science tells us, that's okay. Okay, I mean as long as it's right. All right, we can be skeptical, but we're not in competition with uh, evolutionary biologists or, or quantum physicists. They can help us, but what they can't tell us. Okay, but going to the moon and back, or sending a probe to the end of the cosmos, what that cannot tell us is why we're here. And according to Colossians, we're here because God loves us. We've been created in Christ. It goes on to say that he is the image. He is the picture. He is the icon. The Greek word is icon for God. Now, I was telling the kids this at Crossroads. If I asked you to draw a picture of God, could you do it? And they looked at me like, I don't know. I said, well, can you draw a picture of wind? Now, you really can't draw a picture of wind. You can draw a picture of how wind touches things, right? Okay. I've said this before, but I, 
I have had all kinds of doubts in my life, and I know every possible argument philosophically and religiously against Christianity. Okay, and there's some good ones out there. But in my entire life, what I could never shake was my grandmother's Jesus. And it's really simple, because what the Bible said about Jesus, she told me, and she believed in Jesus, and she looked like Jesus. In other words, the way Jesus sounded, his love and his forgiveness and his compassion and his care, she was loving, compassionate, and caring. And if you asked her why she was this way, she'd be embarrassed, because she didn't. She was humble, but... If she asked her, you would say, well, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. And she'd go around singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And whether you like that song or not, I, I used to not like I like it again because he was her friend and she looked like him. So I could, I could be skeptical about almost everything, but I could never get rid of my grandmother's Jesus because the picture that she showed me of Jesus sounded really familiar to what the gospel said about Jesus. Except for the, you know, knocking over tables. She never did that. <laughs> Jesus had a worse temper than my grandmother did, all right? <laughs> okay, all right. I, I said that just to offend somebody. All right, anyway. That, but uh, but what, what Paul says here is that Jesus is the picture of God. So we... If we like what you see in Jesus, okay, then you can trust that's what God is. You may not be able to see God. You can't see God. But Jesus is the exact picture of who he is. So he's why we're here. He's why we're here in this building without air conditioning today because it's broken, right? Because he's the head of the church. I mean, you may like each other. I like you all. But frankly, I could, I could, miss, I could miss you for a week, all right? <laughs> if I knew, hey, the air conditioner I work, okay, we'll see you next week. All right? God bless. No, we're here because Christ is the head of our church. And our future hope that we have, the hope of glory, is because he's the first fruit of the dead. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have hope that someday we will as well. I just did a review uh, for a book um, entitled The Church of Us vs. Them. Um, and he's, a, he's a professor in uh, a seminary in Chicago, near Chicago. And one of the things he talks about is that we, why we use religion as a weapon, why Christians are so divided. And sometimes we use our beliefs as an en enemy-making machine. Okay? The history of Christianity has often been, well, you're on this side, I'm on the other side. You're a Catholic, I'm a Lutheran. Ah. You're a Reformed person, I'm a Luther. Oh, you don't baptize babies. So you're a Baptist, but I'm a Reformed person. We go on and on. You don't speak in tongues? All right, you're wrong. You speak in tongues? You're crazy, you're wrong. In other words, we do that kind of thing. Oh, you're a progressive. Oh, you're a fundamentalist. So the history of Christianity has been doing that. The interesting thing is, at the heart of who Jesus is, is reconciling. What's it say here? That through him God has pleased to reconcile to himself all things. So if Christ is bringing things together, who in the world are we to rip things apart? That's okay. It's all right to disagree. Okay. And not everybody is right. And sometimes you have to say, you know, I, no, we, we've not, we're not going to do that. You, there are times you have to do that. But none of us are in a position to cast anybody out. 
None of us are in a position to say, well, you know, because you think different than me, you are X, Y, and Z. Again, it's okay to say bad ideas are bad, but we are not and ever should we be ripping apart what Christ has died to bring together. In the end, on the day of judgment, I can see God saying, okay, I understand why people who don't believe in me don't get along, okay? Why couldn't you guys just put up with each other a little bit? Why couldn't you guys forgive? And forgiveness is hard. Why couldn't you just agree to disagree? Why couldn't you remember that I broke my body I was ripped apart so that you could come together. Why couldn't you remember how much I'd forgiven you so you could forgive others? Why couldn't you love a little more when remembering how much I loved you? The great thing about the New Testament, there is no idea that doesn't have an application. <laughs> the greatness of Christ is something that is to make us want to be better. The goodness of Christ is something that should make us want to be good to each other. The sacrifice of Christ's love for us should make us want to sacrifice and love for one another. The joy that was set before him is something that should allow us to live in joy. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.